Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm your host, Jason Schulman. We've got a great show for you today. My guest is Jeffrey Schulson, who teaches at the University of Connecticut, here to talk about his new book, Fictions of Conversion, Jews, Christians, and Cultures of Change in Early Modern England, out in 2013 from University of Pennsylvania Press. Jeffrey, welcome to New Books in Jewish Studies. Thank you, Jason. It's great to be here. Great to have you. So let's jump right in. Set the context for us. Uh, for those of us who are not familiar with early modern England, what's going on in uh, the 1500s in England to, to set up the background for the book? Well, it's an exceptionally volatile period in English history. Uh, it's the period that sees England undergo enormous changes um, politically, culturally, socially, and religiously. Um, it's the period in which England ceases to be uh, affiliated with the Catholic Church, part of the larger Roman Catholic Church, and finds its way rather peripatetically and and through fits and starts eventually into becoming uh, the Protestant nation that it remains uh, in many respects even to this day. Um, uh, As a part of this religious transformation, there are also all sorts of, and related to to those religious transformations are all kinds of political changes um, that are happening um, and that culminate in really probably one of the most uh, important um, periods uh, within the history of the English monarchy, the Elizabethan period, which uh, sees the lo- uh, extensive consolidation of power under the cr- under the crown um, and a kind of centralization of power um, uh, within England as well. So there's there's a lot of political and religious change going on, and you start the book talking about the um, the different uh, monarchs and how it went from. Catholic to Protestant, back to Catholic, back to Protestant. That's right. What's, what's going on there? Right. So, so I'll bet some of the listeners are familiar with some basic outlines of this story. Um, um, initially, England was part of the larger um, Catholic world, which was the, so the, the the main expression of Western Christianity for for very nearly more than a, th- a thousand years. Um, uh, and around the same time, though not um, initially for the same reason that um, Martin Luther was fomenting a certain kind of uh, split from and ultimately a reformation uh, within the, 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 Catholic, the, the church on the continent. England was also um, beginning to separate itself from the Catholic church. And that initially took the form of uh, a break that was in response to Henry VIII's desire to change wives. Um, he had originally been ma- married to Catherine of Aragon. Uh, and when, for a variety of reasons, he chose no longer to be married to her, um, uh, he sought a an annulment of the of the marriage from the Pope, uh, who refused to give it to him for a variety of religious and political reasons, and um, that precipitated a break from the Catholic Church. Now, uh, why this is important is because uh, it was not initially a break that was uh, the product of certain kinds of theological disputes in the way that Luther's break from the Catholic Church was. Uh, so that um, even within what became the Church of England, um, many of the religious practices, um, the liturgy, the 
the ways in which religious uh, behaviors were uh, were performed was not all that different from uh, the Catholic Church that England had broken itself away from. But over the course of the next several decades, um, uh, English um, divines and other um, um, readers of European texts who had come under the influence of Luther's writings and eventually also under under the influence of Calvin's writings um, sought to push the break from the church to be a much more extensive one, a much more thoroughgoing one uh, that would involve all kinds of reforms to English uh, religious practice. And that, um, acceler- that process accelerated under the initially under the rule of Henry's uh, successor, Edward, uh, his son, Edward, um, who uh, didn't last very long on the throne. But during his period, of, during his, uh, his, his time as king, um, much more radical changes were put into place. Now, the problem is that after Edward died, um, uh, the, and the question of succession, the, the next to take the throne was Mary. Uh, and Mary was herself the daughter of Catherine of Aragon and herself remained a loyal Catholic. And she returned England to being Catholic. Um, during her period of reign and and made it illegal uh, and um, difficult for anyone to continue in the more reformed approach, the more reformed direction that had been uh, instituted by her predecessors. Uh, and that resulted in a number of the more ra- more radical Protestants leaving uh, England, uh, putting themselves into um, voluntary exile in Geneva and elsewhere. Uh, and and England remained Catholic under Mary's reign until uh, she was displaced by Elizabeth. Um, who uh, took the throne in 1558, and when her returned, when, when she became queen, she um, there was some speculation about this, but she eventually um, um, made England back into the Protestant nation that it had been. So it had gone from Catholic to Protestant to Catholic to Protestant over the course of about 40 or 50 years, uh, and during that time, all sorts of religious changes were being uh, experimented with, tried out. Some were being in- implemented and then being retracted. Some were being pushed further. Um, and uh, it, it became a real challenge for, as it were, the common English person to figure out exactly where and how his or her religious loyalties should be uh, assigned. So during this time of religious and political tr- change, what are the fictions of conversion? Well, um, in light of the, the sort of brief religious history that I've just described, um, it's not surprising that it was uh, it became necessary for many English men and women to uh, develop a certain kind of adaptability to religious change, um, to identify perhaps one point with and and attend Catholic church services. And then at another point, whether or not it was a function of their own religious change of heart to conform to the new Protestant regime. Uh, and perhaps yet once more with Mary on the throne to go back to attending Catholic church and, and attending Catholic mass. Uh, so uh, it was uh, a characteristic of English religious practice during this period um, that uh, many had to be prepared to change. They had to be prepared to change their identification, to uh, to to assign their allegiance to and their loyalties to one church and then to another church. Uh, and so what I've called fictions of conversion is a kind of a, a larger term to describe the, the, the necessary. And by fictions, I, I don't mean um, mean it necessarily in any kind of derogatory fashion, but in a way 
that suggests the kind of ongoing constructed nature and the kind of reconstructing nature of religious identity during the period. Um, uh, religious instability, religious change was a kind of characteristic feature of English life during the 16th century. And I've assigned that I've, I've assigned the term fictions of conversion to that sort of experience of religious change and religious instability that characterizes the period. Um, so uh, the next step in the argument of the book is to suggest that uh, because this instability was itself a source of considerable anxiety and and uh, and and it could be very unsettling. Uh, one of the ways in which English culture uh, sought to sort of solve this in, this anxiety or to resolve this anxiety was to assign that instability to project it onto a kind of religious other who um, who could serve as the focal point of many of those anxieties and who could, as it were, siphon off some of those anxieties so that they would not necessarily be as pressing to the sense of English religious identity that was emerging. And that religious other is the figure of the Jew. Um, this is a, a particularly uh, um, compelling solution or, or, or attractive solution in, in paradoxically precisely because Jews, for the most part, simply didn't uh, live in England during this period. They had been exiled from England um, back in the end of the 13th century uh, and had not yet returned uh, in any numbers to England uh, during the 16th century. Uh, so that um, they were a kind of absent presence in England and the English imagination, and as such could be a kind of assigned and invented, assigned a certain kind of identity or, or have an, an identity invented for them against which no reality could count contradict it. Um, there weren't real Jews to compare to the kind of imagined Jews that, that uh, begin to populate English imagination uh, during this period. And it's, it's that capacity to kind of serve as this cipher for ideas about conversion and about change and about instability that makes, uh, makes the figure of the Jew so compelling during this period and, and accounts, in my view, for the, the sort of uh, the appearance of, of figures of Jewish figures um, in ways that might otherwise be unexpected um, uh, throughout the period. Interesting. So paradoxically, because there are so few actual Jews, the, the figure of the Jew or the imaginary Jew uh, takes on a certain power within early modern England. Is that right? That's exactly right. <clears throat> and and can can become uh, uh, anything in some ways. And um, most most interestingly, can become in some ways opposite things can be can be constructed in ways that seem are seemingly contradictory to one another. Figures who represent the perils of inauthentic religious transformation on the one hand, but also figures who represent the possibilities and the promise of religious salvation on the other hand. They can serve both purposes simultaneously because they are they are these kinds of incredibly flexible uh, imaginary figures. And so um, certain anxieties are projected onto the figure of the Jew. The figure of the Jew serves as a lightning rod uh, for some of these cultural anxieties, ambiguities. That's right. That's right. Uh, and, and, and accounts for why they, they emerge in certain, uh, in certain kinds of texts. I mean, probably, again, many of your listeners will be familiar with someone like Shylock from The Merchant of Venice, who's a, sort of an obvious example of this. But, but Shylock is one of several uh, Jews who 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 populate the English stage in one form or another 
um, and who offer these very compelling um, um, figures uh, who are simultaneously sources of threat, but also sources of possibility. Wonderful. So let's take us through the chapters, um, because you have five chapters uh, through which you build your argument. Uh, and in the first chapter, uh, you look at key figures in English writings about religious conversion. Um, so tell us more about That's that. That's right. So, so the, 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 the work of the first chapter is really to establish this nexus, this connection between English writings about religious conversion that are, that are not especially or immediately or obviously connected to, to questions of Jewishness with the figure of the Jew. So um, I take up uh, a number of different writings about religious change during the period that are specifically and most, most directly about shifts between Protestantism and Catholicism uh, and the pressures that, uh, that, that impinge upon Catholics to, uh, to transfer their loyalties to the Protestant church or efforts by Catholics to retain their identity, if not openly, then secretly within this context of this pressure. Um, and I, I, I read a number of different um, writers on these questions of the shift between Catholicism and Protestantism and locate within them uh, a number of different kinds of um, depictions and a certain kind of language that's used that I then attach to or, or connect with much more explicit ways in which Jews are described and Jews are written about during this period. So that the same language that comes to characterize and um, um, become uh, the means through which English writers explore and struggle with their own sense of religious instability is a language that we can see also attached to um, Jewish conversion, uh, the hopes for and the fears about Jewish conversion in um, the early modern period. Now, this is all, of course, particularly relevant because of the the kinds of Jews that most Englishmen would have, if they had any familiarity at all with Jews during this period, um, they would have almost exclusively been um, themselves Jews who had been the products of the forced conversions and ultimately the expulsions from the Iberian Peninsula uh, that begin in the 14th and 15th and, and 15th century. So Jews who had been living in Spain and Portugal and who had been forced to convert um, uh, and sometimes are identified as Moranos, sometimes as Conversos, sometimes as crypto Jews, who then for various reasons left Iberia. Uh, and um, many, some of them established a new community um, in the Netherlands. Some of them remained Christian, uh, but others chose that opportunity to recover or reclaim their Jewish identity. And it was these Jews and conversos that uh, Englishmen who were living in the Low Countries in the Netherlands might have had some more um, intimate contact with. So the very idea of conversion itself was attached to Jews um, uh, specifically because of the immediate history that these Jews had un themselves undergone. So that first chapter explores this kind of nexus of conversion in relation to Protestantism and Catholicism on the one hand and Jews on the other. Um, the second chapter um, then looks specifically at biblical precedents for English writings about um, uh, conversion. And in particular, I'm interested there with in four um, biblical figures from the Hebrew Bible or as the Christian um, uh, reader would refer to it, the Old Testament. Um, who were taken as prototypes for conversion, um, two men and two women. The men are the figure of Jethro, who is uh, Moses's father-in-law, figure of Naaman, who is a general in the Assyrian army, um, who appears in the Book of Kings uh, and Second Kings. Um, and then the two women are the figure of Rahab, uh, the, the 
woman who uh, helps the spies that Joshua sends to conquer the city of Jericho during the, uh, in the book of Judges, and the figure of Ruth, um, probably the most famous biblical convert, as it were. And I'm interested there in reading uh, and seeing how English writers from the 16th and 17th century read these different um, um, biblical figures as precedents for uh, expressions of the experience of or the dynamics of conversion. Uh, and some of the kinds of particular interest I'm, I'm, I explore there are the distinctions that seem to emerge between male biblical converts and female biblical converts, and sort of abstractions that attach to male biblical converts and the concerns about the body that seem to arise when uh, writing about female biblical converts. Um, it's it's uh, not at all coincident, um, irrelevant to this story that both the fig, both the character of Ruth and the character of Rahab figure interestingly in the genealogy that the book of Matthew gives to the figure of Jesus. So there's a lot at stake in establishing the bona fides of these converts if they serve as essential steps in what ultimately comes to produce the, the Christian Messiah. Uh, so that's um, what my second chapter explores. So and the, if you take those two first two chapters together, they are really about um, developing a, a kind of vocabulary for and, and a sensitivity to some of the primary concerns attached with religious to religious conversion in the period. The last, the second, the next three chapters take those ideas and use them to read other, what I call technologies of transformation or technologies of conversion, other modes of change that are not especially or explicitly about religious transformation, but that, as I go on to argue, draw upon the same kinds of vocabulary, the same kind, and, and explore some of the same concerns, and most remarkably, and in unexpected ways, have a sort of, uh, have, have a, an interest in and a relation to questions of Jews and Jewishness in early modern England. So let's talk about, let's talk about chapter four, because I think that that's uh, an, probably a very interesting one for our listeners. So that, that's, that chapter is about alchemy. Yes. So what, what interested me and in, the way I got interested in this, um, this chapter in the, in the first place was um, I, I came to see that there was this very interesting revival uh, of an interest in alchemy uh, in the late 16th and early 17th century in England, really at the very beginnings of what ultimately becomes the scientific revolution, which we now think of as being in some ways diametrically opposed to something like alchemy, which has all sorts of mystical and esoteric associations with it. But in fact, if we look back at the history of science, many of the earliest practitioners of alchemy, of, of excuse me, of, of, the, uh, of the new science um, were themselves um, interested also in what we now think of as alchemy, that there's a kind of interesting connection between them. And as I began to read a little bit more about, about alchemy in this period and um, some of the texts uh, uh, on alchemy in this period, I was really surprised to discover how frequently alchemy was attached to Jewishness. It was described by many as a Jewish science, as something that ultimately had its origins in Jewish mystical and esoteric writings. And so I wanted to explore what the connection between Jews and alchemy was all about. Alchemy, of course, is about transformation. It's about um, most obviously changing um, base metals to gold. But more generally, it's about refining the material world into its greatest, into its quintessence, into its most pure expression. And so it becomes this wonderful figure for 
religious conversion as well. And often we, we find in writings about religious conversion is language that, that associ is associated with alchemy as well. So um, that, that chapter uh, looks at this kind of interesting connect, and, uh, and for me, what was a surprising connection between Jews and Jewishness on the one hand and alchemy on the other hand. And it then becomes for me a way of reading some very interesting literary texts from the period that that draw upon these alchemical images. I, I read I read um, Merchant of Venice, Ben Jonson's play The Alchemist in uh, in tandem with one another. Um, using this idea of alchemy and transformation as a, as a way of thinking a little bit about the processes of transformation in those plays. And then I read um, uh, in the slightly later period, the poetry of Henry Vaughan in the middle of the 17th century, another important poet who draws extensively on alchemical figures and images in his poetry, but is also extensively interested in um, the, the possibilities of Jewish conversion as a kind of emblem of his own religious expectations. And then in the final chapter, you look at the well-known writer Milton, uh, who you know, may, maybe people wouldn't think would appear in a book of Jewish studies. But what's the connection there? So that connection, I mean, that that actually has a has a um, it, it, it goes back in some ways to my earlier work. My first book was on Milton and rabbinic writing, Milton and, and, and Midrash. So I've had this ongoing interest um, in possible connections between Milton's writings and earlier Jewish writings. But in that chapter, um, Rather than look at Paradise Lost, which is what my focus of my last book was primarily on, I look at his uh, his la one of his last poems, Paradise Regained, uh, a shorter epic poem that is um, basically about the identity of the Christian Messiah, um, and it takes up the the brief story that's told in some of the Gospels of the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness by by the devil, and uses that as a way of thinking about and imagining um, this figure of Jesus coming to understand his particular role as the Messiah. And uh, I'm not the first to observe the coincidence, but I, I try to explore more deeply than others have the fact that that uh, Paradise Regained was published almost at exactly the same moment as the Sabbatean phenomenon was sweeping through uh, through Europe. And for, again, for those readers who are or listeners who may not be as familiar, this is the 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 movement that was prompted by the figure of Shabtai Tzvi, Shabtai Tzvi, the uh, the false Jewish Messiah who managed to convince extraordinary numbers of Jews throughout Europe that he was the Jewish Messiah and who had enormous followings before ultimately he um, uh, he was forced to convert to Islam uh, by the Sultan um, and um, left many of his followers quite disappointed. But but um, the, the point here is that he was this figure who stood for not just for Jews, but ultimately also for Christians who became very interested in this phenomenon. He stood for this figure of the false Messiah, of someone who uh, inspired all kinds of enthusiasm about the possibility of salvation and who then ultimately disappointed um, those followers. Uh, and around the same time, there were a number of Christian impostors messianic impostors as well. So the whole question of of being able to verify and authenticate a claim for messianic status is very much um, in the atmosphere, in the ether during this period uh, within Jewish discourse and within Christian discourse. And so for Milton to take up this question of the authentic identity of Jesus and what that stands for at this time seems to me to be more, much more than simply a coincidence, but drawing upon those same questions of authenticity. Fascinating. Thank you, Jeffrey.
It's time now for the, the lightning round, oh. as I'm calling it. Um, what do you hope the impact of the book is? Well, it's, I, I guess I, I'm, I, I see this as part of my larger efforts to try to bring to bear some of the insights of, of contemporary Jewish studies, which I think has a lot of exciting things going on, uh, bring, to bear, bring it to bear on, on the study of English literary history, English literary and cultural history. Um, there have been some recent uh, developments in that, in that area, not just by me, but by some of my contemporary scholars. And I think that that's a very exciting and important approach that deserves further, um, further investigation. So I'm hoping to be able to kind of sensitize those readers uh, of English literary and cultural history to, uh, to these questions uh, and to, to have them become much more central to their investigations rather than simply to be kind of a window dressing uh, or a secondary or tangential set of questions. But at the same time, I think it's important for practitioners of Jewish studies um, to recognize the importance of seeing the, the, the ways in which these religious movements and these religious questions are part of larger um, cultural and, and literary phenomena. So I guess it works in both ways. Great. So both, both sets of scholars are in different fields, uh, can learn things from each other. Yeah, I hope I have readers in both worlds. How is researching and writing the book change the way you see the world? <laughs> uh, well, I suppose I, I, I'm certainly much more attuned to especially as I read materials from this period, attuned to um, references to and statements about um, uh, religious identity and religious practice that uh, are, that from, from what I can tell or that I'm more sensitive to a certain kind of anxiety that they express. Um, the, 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 what we often read are these polemics amongst various religious groups across between Protestants and Catholics or across Protestant denominations or between Jews and Christians. Um, the polemics are interesting for a variety of reasons, but one of the things I think I'm much more, I'm, I'm much more sensitive to now is how those polemics express certain kinds of internal anxieties that I'm, I'm interested in discovering. So, Jeffrey, I'm at a cocktail party. What tidbit from the book can I use to impress someone? <laughs> Well, I, mean, I, I guess I would I would pick up on some on a, on a part of the the one chapter we didn't talk about, which is my chapter on translation, and um, I would point out about the kind of the exact coincidence uh, of the appearance of the, probably the most influential uh, English translation of the Bible, the King James translation, the authorized version that was published in 1611, and the first full translation of Homer's poetry, uh, and uh, talk about how interesting it is that these two seminal and influential texts came out at the same time and what that might say about English culture as it assimilates new influences in this period. I think my favorite tidbit was the uh, the insult for Catholics. I believe it was the Jesuits specifically. Yeah. What, what are they called? Is that suits? Suits, yeah. Suits. Right. What, where does that name come which, from? Uh, which, which, could, which probably means pig. And so I speculate. I mean, I have no, I have no way of fully... Uh, confirming this, but it is interesting that it's a, it's a pejorative name that seems somewhat similar to the pejorative name that was, was assigned to um, these conversos, Moranos, which at least by some uh, accounts, the etymology of which is uh, it's a Spanish word for pig. So in both cases, they're being characterized as pigs. Yeah, I thought that was an interesting tidbit. Um, all right, Jeffrey, we have taken a good bit of your time. So uh, any parting thoughts you'd like to share and what are you working on next? 
Well, I can tell you about my, my new project. I, it's a project that I've started on and I've been, I've been nibbling away at. Um, and it in some ways comes from that third chapter, the chapter on translation. Um, I'm, I'm in, I've become very interested in the whole phenomenon of Bible translation. And I'm working on now what I'm describing as a kind of literary and cultural history of the English Bible from the first Reformation translation, which was produced by um, William Tyndall in, in 1525. And that culminates about a century later with the King James Bible in 1611. But specifically, because a number of people have written about these translations, I'm interested in how over the course of that century, um, increased access to an interest in Jewish writing um, makes itself felt in each successive iteration of the English Bible. About eight different translations, full translations of the English Bible are produced in this century. And with each one, one can detect increasingly more interest in and use of Jewish writings from this period. So that's that's the, the new project. Jeffrey, that sounds like a great project. I, I want to thank you for being on the show today. The book is Fictions of Conversion, Jews, Christians, and Cultures of Change in Early Modern England, out, from, out in 2013 from the University of Pennsylvania Press. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. You've been listening to New Books in Jewish Studies. Thank you for joining us. Check us out at newbooksinjewishstudies.com. You can download the podcast on iTunes, check out our Facebook page, and follow us on Twitter, at New Books Judaism. Got an idea for a book we should cover? Send us an email, newbooksinjewishstudies at gmail.com. We'll see you next time.